New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our cellular intelligence offers us invaluable wisdom for transformation, relationships, and healing. Today we'll be exploring our cells and their astonishing architecture, intelligence, and ability to function harmoniously. How can we engage that minuscule intelligence? What do cells teach us about letting go and being in the present moment? What do they teach us about cooperation, communication, and purpose? How does the sacred art of our ancestors reflect the microscopic architecture of our human cells? Today, we'll be exploring the answers to these and many other questions with our guest, Dr. Sondra Barrett. Sondra Barrett is a biochemist and completed her postdoctoral training in immunology and hematology. She has developed both basic cancer research and supportive care programs while working with children with life-threatening illnesses. She has also studied the expressive arts, energy practices, and shamanism. Her photomicrographs have won awards from both Nikon and Olympus and have appeared in Scientific American Magazine, Lawrence Hall of Science, and numerous other venues and international publications. She's presented many workshops using this art form as a touchstone for learning about health, science, and sacred symbology. She is the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. Join us for the next hour as we explore the sacred geometry of our cells with our guest, Dr. Sondra Barrett. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Sondra, welcome. Thank you. Good being here, Justine. It's great to have you. Oh, my. Um, now, as a trained scientist, how did you bridge the science of cells with that realm of soul or spirit? Well, it was a fighting bridge, I'll tell you that. Um, the first place for me to really make the transition from being a hardcore scientist was uh, seeing living human cells under the microscope. They became real rather than structures you'd see in a textbook or molecules you'd see in a textbook. And once I saw them under the microscope, I had to 
question where do they come from and who designed them. They seemed pretty intelligent in what they were able to do. The first ones were watching human white blood cells going after plastic beads. And how do they know that they were there in the first place? So that was the first uh, opening unawareness to something more special than measuring cells to see how to make cells different. Um, for diagnostics and what made normal cells different from cancer cells. And um, there were a couple of places, bridging places. One was I started showing, doing slideshows to kids with cancer down in pediatric oncology at the University of California and getting to know these children and seeing that they weren't always fitting the statistics of who was supposed to die according to their biological diagnosis and who should live. That made me question something else was involved in the healing. And then uh, one little boy that I got really close with looked like he was dying. He ultimately did. And I didn't know how to deal with that and went to a clinical psychologist who I know you know, Tom Pinkson. And uh, Tom was doing support for some of us who were doing alternatives with these kids. And uh, when I went to his office to figure out how to deal with death, uh, first he said, you don't deal, you feel. And I saw that he was a shaman. He was. It wasn't a pristine clinical psychologist office. And... Um, I needed something more than science. It was stressful, and it only was one window. And uh, working with Tom starting in the late 70s, early 80s, it, it opened me to another way of knowing that it, everything didn't have to be measurable. Although, as I started our conversation, I fought it all the way. You know, if, if I can't prove it, what are my scientific colleagues going to say about what I'm beginning to intuit. And it's only, you know, now in my elder years, I'm willing to own up to, we're both, you know, science is a great tool and, uh, and we're sacred. And we're sacred. So with the little boy, he, he lived longer, I think, than anyone expected. Is that right? Or, no, or, no, he really, really. he really didn't. Um, and children, acute leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is fairly curable, especially now. So he should have lived, I would have thought, from the biology of his cells, he should have lived longer. And he didn't. And he was he's the only person I've ever been with when they, when they died. So that was kind of, not kind of, another doorway. His parents asked me to pick up his sister because he was dying. And... um she, you know, she was seven, he was five or six, and she asked me, where's he going to go? Will it hurt? Like, I didn't have answers to those questions. But, um, you know, being, they were Hispanic family, and they included me, they wanted me to stay with him. And uh, all I could say was the light left when he died. And that was another it wasn't just that his breathing stopped. There was a, a certain light about him, and that was gone. And uh, it just made me question, you know, what is this all about? You know? did you, and did you continue to work with children and, 
and expand that that work that you were doing with them? I worked with children for a number of years from that. I was doing imagery. I mean, one of the places of these turning point was um, a dad came up to my lab. I was developing diagnostic tools for children's leukemias, adults too, but more with kids. And a dad came up to my lab. This had to be in the late 70s. And he wanted me to photograph his son's cells through the microscope for his son to do imagery. And you know way back when imagery was not part of mainstream medicine. It probably still is not considered mainstream. And um, that was another thing that brought me to working, you know, in, in shamanic traditions was the little boy wanted to see his cells and their molecules, and I would bring pictures of cells and molecules to um, the clinic. After a while, the politics of science got to be too hard for me, and seeing kids die who shouldn't have, and I didn't have a better answer, uh, I left science. But I started working with adults uh, with immune illnesses and uh, cancer and heart disease. So still stayed in a blending practice, if you will, of what can I give them that I've learned in my own healing. Not I'm not trained as a therapist. So that was always, I, I look at my journey and it, I was, have always, I've been at conflict with myself for a lot of years. How can I be leading groups when I'm not trained as a therapist or a minister? Um, but some, somewhere early on, images came to me. And I didn't know where they came from, and it felt like it was something I was supposed to continue doing. Again, it's uh, my life's challenge of where does, where does this information come from? Really started getting you questioning. I, I want to say, um, just yesterday, I'm preparing for surgery myself, a knee replacement surgery. And you were saying, like, in the 70s, guided imagery was just not accepted. And in my HMO, I asked them about, you know, if I can have um, um, a CD played during surgery and everything. And they were so great. They said... Uh, oh yes, I'll, um, absolutely. Let's let me give you a CD of Bell Ruth Napersack, who does all this guided imagery, and the whole HMO supports all of that. Now this this is a change. It's happened very fast as far as accepting the idea that guided imagery or visualizations mm -hmm. that it's more accepted. I think it was more accepted because it came from grassroots. People were demanding it. They were doing it on their own. And finally, again in the 90s, the Office of Alternative Medicine became the National Center of Complementary Alternative Medicine, and more and more research is done. So it's like it's a stress. Even if we can't measure an outcome in terms of disease, the getting rid of cancer, it relieves your stress. It relieves your pain. You have something that you can do instead of worrying about you know, what's the outcome of my surgery? Mm -hmm. S to me, it seems very slow. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, Sandra, going back to you said the images came to me and you were actually taking photographs of cells and, and so something was speaking to you. Can you say something more about that? Well, I was taking pictures of cells and molecules and um, 
Before I took pictures of molecules, it was only cells, and I went to the science museum as for a break, and uh, there were pictures of chemicals from the brain taken with the same kind of microscope I was looking at cells with. I had no reality of chemicals other than there are these structures in textbooks, or I could buy them on the shelf. And uh, that there was any inherent beauty in the pictures was incredible to me. And so I just started pulling everything off the shelf. I was also, in those days, uh, I was able to get my hands on substances that changed the brain, uh, like LSD and peyote. And there was a, things look like what they did. I mean, LSD under the microscope looked like a visionary landscape. Peyote looked like Weechel yarn paintings. So there was this, something didn't compute for me. Um, so there's something about, that you talk about in your book about sacred art, even even cave paintings, where there is a correlation between these cave paintings and what we see under a microscope. I know, well, it relates to that my, one of my burning questions is, where does this information come from? Where does our knowledge come from? Where does, uh, where did the design for the mandala come from? Did that someone make it up? Or were people visioning inside and seeing, you know, if you look at this computer graphic or models of DNA, it looks like a mandala. You know, when you look it down from the top. So it's like, were people seeing that? Obviously, they didn't name it. They didn't name it. No, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Sondra Barrett. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, sondrabarrett.com. And Sondra is S-O-N-D-R-A, Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Sondra Barrett, and she's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. Sondra, I'm curious, what makes a cell alive, let's say a biological life, different from the inert, let's say a rock or something that we don't consider alive? What, what makes a cell alive? Oh, great question. <laughs> you know, scientists don't agree on what's life. What I would, how I answer that is what makes cells alive is the 
deposit, if you will, of sacred energy, of the life force. The molecules, you know, you blend all the molecules together, that's not going to be enough to make something lively and vital. It, you need the energy. And where does that come from? Where does that come where from? Where does that where come does from? Where does that come from? Right. Does it come from God or the universe or nature or however people want to define it? It is, you know, a divine spark that makes the difference between something dead and alive. So even in that that microscopic part that that makes makes us human, I mean, together with trillions of them, each one has this kind of spark or this energy that is rather mysterious. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, cells and, and the structures and some of the things that they do that those of us on a spiritual quest would also consider very, very good things to pursue, so to speak. So let's talk about some of those attributes of a, of a cell. Sure. I mean, it's like, it's interesting when I started extrapolating what cells had to do for life, I saw them as spiritual lessons. And one, you know, one, one example, or a first example is cells need community. They don't thrive by themselves. If you put a cell by itself in a Petri dish, it will program death. In the developing embryo, neurons that don't connect, brain cells that don't connect with other brain cells, they program themselves to die. So connection is essential, one at the molecular level, the cellular level. And when you, th when you think about, we're trillions of cells, as you said, and these cells have to be cooperative and support one another, how they listen to each other. I can write stories about it, but how do they really? How does my toe that I've just hurt uh, send the message up to the brain and I need to do something? How fast does that happen? Where's the intelligence and the knowledge in these cells? So community is first. Communication is the other part of that. And yes, in in communication, that happens. I, I know something that you wrote in the book uh, that just really impressed me. The communication happens in a, a picosecond, I think you called it, picosecond, a trillionth of a second. That communication is so fast. I, it just boggles the mind. Totally boggles the mind. And if you think when people start talking about the quantum level, at that level, you can see we're changing at that and time frames we can't imagine, and uh, quantities we can't imagine. I don't really know what a trillion, a hundred trillion cells look like, or a picosecond. But when spiritual teachers or a th therapists are talking about being the now, you can understand why that's so important. It's like, oh, I can, I don't have to worry about yesterday or tomorrow. If I'm now, that's giving my cells. A, a better pharmacy, if you will, better molecules of being more peaceful rather than in worry. And Does that change. actually affect our cells? <laughs> well, if we're not worried or, or. Does it affect our cells? Well, you think about if we're worried or fearful, the body prepares us to fight, to get away, to deal with the fear, even if it's an imagined fear. And that changes the environment that the cells are in and what the cells will do. So 
one of the reasons why I felt I needed to write this book, it, it's we have so many ways of bringing ourselves back to now or back to, I don't need to worry right now whether people are going to like the interview. Um, how, what do I need to do? And the more I understood how our cells worked, the more strategies I saw they gave us. One of the things that you talk about is how, and help me with this, how cells embrace one another. And I just find that so fascinating. It's like love is the glue. I mean, I think about embrace, and I, I think about that as, as love. Well, the first place I saw that written was Teilhard de Jardin, who was a theologian as well as a biologist. And he said, if it wasn't possible for the molecules to basically connect and embrace, love couldn't exist higher up in us. And I thought, oh, because the way the molecules, if we're feeling stress, the way the cells receive that information, they have to embrace the molecule. It's not just floating out there. And so that was from a theologian's perspective. And then fairly recently, um, as I was finishing up the book, I read uh, Nobel laureate Christian de Duf, who talked about molecular complementarity. Let me just spell his name. D-E-D-U-V-E. -E. Okay. Um, he, he, from a Nobel laureate who really looked at uh, the architecture of the cell way back when, from purely a biologic perspective, a biochemist perspective, to see where he moved to molecular complementarity was the same as the embrace. Our bodies work complementing each other, like a lock and key or a puzzle, the way enzymes work to accelerate reactions in the body. They connect with the molecule. They embrace the molecule. If they don't embrace, change shape, and hug, nothing happens. And as you're saying that, you're you're holding <laughs> your hands. Our listeners can't see this, but but Sandra is is putting her hands together and squeezing her hands together in this embrace. Yes, it's a universal. You know, it's like discovering a universal principles of design. And embrace is one of them. And um, also cells or molecules, they, they call on allies, don't they? Cells will call on allies, of course. If I mean, if you think about the heart cell can only do so many things. It contract, it relax, it pumps blood around the body. If it needs more protein to make more muscle tissue, it's going to need to recruit other cells. Hello, down there, give me uh, some amino acids so I can build protein. I mean, if we really sat back and thought, what if we had to do that? What if we had to figure out how to make all the proteins in the body and decode the genes and send that information around. And what if we had to figure out what was dangerous and not? So all these, I mean, I, I've become more uh, reverent of cells the, the older I get, or maybe the more I learn about them, because it's phenomenal. It's like, you couldn't ask me to do that. You couldn't, technology is trying to figure out how to do some of that. Well, you know, Sandra, that's one of the themes in your book that I got from it is that absolute 
loving ourselves. I mean, really, I, I, I haven't really looked at it like that. I mean, I walk around my body, but to actually think of it on a cellular level, to actually love ourselves and appreciate, just like you just mentioned, an appreciation for ourselves. So please share with us your ideas about that. I'll give you an ex- example, uh, especially when it comes to the battle as a scientist to this other cellular shaman, sometimes I'm called. When I was teaching uh, a workshop at Noetics and I was in the throes of writing this book, I was totally in my head. I couldn't get into my spiritual self. I couldn't get into a soft, more emotional self. And it was Sunday morning, and I went into the garden up there at Earthrise, and uh, I was really frustrated with my performance. And uh, sometimes I remember to thank my cells. And I, in this garden, I decided I'm going to thank him for at least getting me here. You know, whether I believe in a conversation with my cells or not, it didn't matter. And I hear this message, oh, you finally got it. What? Where was that coming from? And then this giddiness inside me just started bubbling up, and I hear this conversation. Um, did they? Did it come from my cells? I like to think yes, because then I was thinking, well, people talk to plants, people talk to spirit guides. Why can't my cells be talking to me? Because a lot of the material in the book. I thought I was making up. You know, I'm good at seeing correspondences. And the cells were saying, we've been giving you this information. We just hoped you were courageous enough to put it out there. So loving my cells, it's like recognize I've been in this love affair for 40 years or more of, you know, they recording me and I'm finally letting... I'm finally embracing them. I mean, another example is I don't like to exercise a whole lot. Um, and if I remember my cells, I'll take my cells out for a walk. And that shifts another kind of consciousness for me. Okay, it's, if my mind says, I'm t- I'd rather sit at my computer, um, but remember the form of who I am, these trillions of living beings holding me up. They need some exercise. They need fresh air. They need to be out in nature. So definitely uh, the courtship continues. All right. Uh, one of the things that you bring up in, in the structure of the cell is um, the strings that are in the cells, and and then you correlate that to the possibility there's something called string theory that's mm-hmm. more um, not not microscopic, but more out there, mm-hmm. uh, bigger, the bigger mm-hmm. picture. But then the smallest picture also is strings. Well, what's interesting is I've just recently got a new biology book out of the library, and they don't even talk about the strings. They don't even talk about the cytoskeleton, which surprises me. So most, most of your listeners, including me here, most of us um, learned about the cytoplasm in the cell. We learned there was an outside membrane and there was a nucleus, and the rest was jello in the cell. And 
In fact, the jello is filled with strings and tubes and struts and filaments that move the cell, that are responsible for pulling the cell apart when it is dividing. Uh, Donald Ingbar, a biochemist at Harvard, actually showed that the strings of the cell are uh, important for uh, decision-making. Well, let's talk about that in a moment. I'm here with Sondra Barrett. She's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. And her website is sondrabarrett.com. And Sondra is spelled S-O-N-D-R-A-B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Sondra Barrett, and she's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. And we were just talking about string theory and strings and the jello inside the cell that is more than just jello, it struts and tubes. And so can you can you say more about that, sure. please? That, that to me is the most exciting part of the new biology the strings of our cells. We've talked about, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Bruce Lipton's work, who talks about the receiving sites on the outside of the cell taking in information. But without an inside responder, it's just antenna. It's just a, a radio receiver. And Ingbar at Harvard was able to show phenomenal work um, that if you put cells in a dish... Again, people, that's where we start learning, isolated cells. You put them in a dish. When they stretch out to fill the dish, that stretch and tension causes the gene to be expressed to make more cells. Now, these cells all have the same genes. Now, suppose there's not enough food left in the dish. Some of those cells may rather than keep on reproducing themselves, let go of a little tension. So the tension is regulated by the strings of the cell. So they let go a little bit of that tension, and now new gene programs are expressed, and they'll become mature cells, and they'll stop reproducing. That's so amazing. They have this intelligence to know when to, to reproduce, when to divide, when to die. Exactly. And uh, and then that's the problem with cancer cells, isn't it? That they don't. It's a lot of pro different problems, but a lot is not programmed programming themselves to die. So the question is, can we give ourselves messages that it's okay to let go? Maybe it's worth a try. Uh, if we were doing it with imagery, uh, a friend of mine who works a lot with cancer patients uh, talked to me about 
you know, those people, including himself, who went into remission when nobody expected to. He said it was all about his experience was letting go of something big, emotionally letting go of something big. So for me, it was, oh, well, that's interesting because the cells, when they fully let go, they program themselves to die. So our cells, every cell that has genes, has the genetic ability to program to self-suicide. And some cancer some of the cancers lose the ability to self-suicide. And one of my questions has been, oh well, I wonder when people fully let go, has that given those cells the message? that they no longer have to express the genes to reproduce, they can let go. So the cancer cells then go into more uh, healthy or normal cell activity, possibly. Either normal uh, or programming death. It's You know, in the old days when I had a lab, uh, the last research I was doing was, can we make leukemia cells norm, you know, normal? And they were able to pick up some properties of being normal cells. Uh, we didn't know so much about the genes then, with very benign substances. Is someone continuing that research? Uh, probably somewhere. <laughs> Let's talk a, a bit about shamanism. You've you've mentioned that several times. And what do you? What can you tell us about? shamanism and the kind that you practice? Well, I wouldn't say I'm a practicing shaman. What, I, what shaman, shamanism is basically the ability to change your consciousness at will uh, and bring information back to the tribe, if you will. So where earlier I said images came to me way back when I started transferring to being more of an educator, um, I worked in a clinic in uh, Marin County to teach meditation or do guided imagery, and images would come to me, and it resonated with whatever client I was working with. So shamanism, from my perspective, is really healing with the imagination, using the imagination, um, using practices that relate to not just visual imagery, but using sound using chanting, using drumming. And it goes back to the strings because what was exciting to me about the strings of the cell, those traditions all would influence the cell's strings. That just reminds me of an Einstein quote that you use in your book. Um, he says, imagination is more important than knowledge. It is a preview of life's coming attractions. So, uh, so imagine the the uh, our ability to imagine is is a powerful powerful tool for humans. Absolutely, I think more of us use imagination again with for worry. We're using it for the negative. We believe worry's okay, but imagining gratitude or imagining feeling wonderful, that has no credibility for a lot of people. It's like, well, how do we change that? One thing that you mentioned uh, is if, if you did a PET scan, P 
PET, a PET scan. I don't know what that stands for. It stands for positive emission tomography. Tomography. So we're ha- we're being scanned. The brain is being scanned, and if we imagine something, the brain does not distinguish whether it's real or imagined. Is that, am I correct about that? Yeah. The the first one of the first studies was basically to be able to do the PET scan they inject people with radioactive glucose and they could see where in your brain the the glucose it lights up when you're using it so first they showed people a picture of a garden and they saw where the brain lit up and then they said close your eyes now imagine or remember the garden and the same area of the brain lit up therefore is there a difference between what we see actually or what we're imagining, they're similar, if not identical. And that also reminds me that cells, you talk about cells have memory, and you give some examples of heart transplant people. Paul Pearsall's work it was some of the most exciting work, I think, around. And what Pearsall did, Pearsall was a very well-known psychologist and immunologist, and uh, he had to get a bone marrow tr- transplant. He had lymphoma. And so he started having conversations in the hospital, you know, while they're all in isolation, w- with people who had heart transplants. And some of them would tell him these very unusual stories, uh, which later came out in his book called The Heart's Code. I'll give one example, and there's lots in there. Um, a-, a husband and a wife are fighting with each other, driving down this dark country road. Uh, they're hit by a truck, the husband dies, the wife knows the husband wanted to donate his organs, made sure that was taken care of. And a couple of months later, by this time, Pearsall is working with people who have had heart transplants, and she asks him if he could arrange for her to meet the man who got her husband's heart. And so Pearsall was able to do that, and it was a young Hispanic boy. And the wife asks the mom, who's also there, can I put my hand on your son's chest? And the mother understood, of course, where's the heart? And she said, of course. And so the wife puts her hand on this young man's chest and says, everything's copacetic. And the mother says, of the boy, says, what does that word mean? It's not their language. She says, everything's okay. When my husband and I would fight, when we were finished with the argument and it was okay, we'd say everything's copacetic. And the mother said, the first words out of her son's mouth when he came out of surgery, getting this man's heart, everything's copacetic. So, so it's like, well, where is that? And it was a word he'd never he'd heard. Never heard. He never it, used. It wasn't his yeah. language. Yeah. So it's fascinating. It's fascinating, isn't it? So there are memories in the cell, and you talk about our cells being our ancestors. What does that mean? <laughs> what, 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 what are we to make of that? Well, if you think about it, we all started as one cell. How did they? What did they know to thrive? What did they know to build community and evolve? It's to me, it's mind blowing. It's like, oh well, they knew enough to build <laughs> creatures as beautiful and as wonderful as us. That's why I'm calling them the ancestors. 
because they are our biological ancestors. You also devote a whole chapter to the sanctuary of a cell. And describe that to us. Well, you know, Darwin, in Darwin talking about the evolution of our species, never talks about the origin of life. And every one of us probably has a different description. How did life start? So I I don't know when I began asking when did life start. Maybe when I started writing this book. Uh, another scientist down in uh, David Deemer down in uh, UC Santa Cruz talked about life needs a place. Until a place was constructed, there was no place for this energy that we talked about earlier to go. And this divine spark. The divine oh. spark. So where, what does the divine spark need? The divine spark needs a container. And so I began thinking, God had to be a biochemist because <laughs> how do you build the container? You know, in the, one of the theories, we were mud or we were hot seawater. The molecules to form the container had to come together, these fatty hydrocarbons, like mixing salad oil with uh, water. You get droplets that contain some of the salt water is going to be contained in this droplet. So way back when in the evolution, molecular evolution of our cells, there had to be the container that, that creates a sanctuary. So since my inclination is to translate the, into sacred correspondences, I'm talking about life needed a place, and that's a sanctuary. And then where do we create sanctuary in our own life? And they're very, so building little altars in our homes or the churches that we've built or different sanctuaries in our gardens. So that makes our cells very happy, huh? Yeah, and you know about circles, sacred yes. circles. So that's a sanctuary. That's another sanctuary. So yes, it makes us feel that we're in a safe place. A safe place. I'm here with Dr. Sandra Barrett, and she's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, sondrabarrett.com, and she spells that S-O-N-D-R-A-B-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Sandra Barrett, Dr. Sandra Barrett, and she's a biochemist by training. And she described herself earlier as a cellular shaman <laughs> in some way. Um, and she is the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. We touched on this lightly. Let's talk about epigenetics. It's a word that many people have heard of. And what exactly is, is that? Well, epigenetic, most of us think our genes are fixed in time. Epigenetics says that environmental changes, lifestyle changes, food changes will affect the expression of our genes. The genes structure and the coding won't change, just the on-off switches change. So that to me is one of the exciting breakthroughs we're seeing in medicine. Uh, the classical study that made us see that we can change genes was with rats called the agouti rat. And the agouti rat were these fat, yellow, sickly, didn't live very long animals. And before the moms-to-be got pregnant, were fed substances equivalent to onions and garlic methyl called methyl donors. Their offspring no longer, they had the same gene, but they were no longer fat. Um, they were brown, slender, healthy animals. And their offspring, without being fed these foods, um, were now, even though they had the gene, were now healthy, brown, slender animals. So we see that we have available to us ways to influence the expression of our genes. And Dean Ornish, a physician here in Northern California, has done one work, one group of patients he worked with were men with prostate cancer. And he showed if they changed their lifestyle, what they ate, meditated, uh, exercised, had group support, that their gene, their prostate cancer genes changed. And I'm assuming that's through an, ep an epigenetic effect. And they only had to do this lifestyle for about three months. And there were, might have been like 90 genes that were changed, prostate cancer genes, which is pretty exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. And as you said, it's, it's not just the changing your diet, but they were doing other things, yes. meditating. And I know one of the things that one of the activities that you enjoy and have been doing for quite a few years is something called Qigong. Qigong, most people are probably familiar with Tai Chi, and Qigong is the parent of Tai Chi. So Qigong means basically the cultivation of Qi or energy. In the Chinese tradition, Qi is energy that flows through the body. It's a different quality of energy than perhaps the divine spark. And uh, years ago, when I was looking to learn about healing, everybody said it's all about energy. And I finally found a Qigong master um, who I, I learned Qigong from. And what's, to me, wonderful about Qigong, you can really f feel the energy. And so over the years, I've developed a practice, which I'm now calling logging on, because how do, how do we step into being connected to the energy of the earth and the heavens and our own energy? And it's very grounding practice to do and uh, stress relieving, simple to learn. And you, one could probably go online and see some demonstrations. Of you it, could huh? go online. Um, in the back of my book, there's the description of uh, practice. 
We are going to do a video, a downloadable video of it. It's just not up there yet. And uh, you can learn so much online, but I would encourage people to find a good teacher mm -hmm. because someone who really is a practitioner of Qigong emits Qi in a very different way. And you spell Qigong Q-I-G-O-N-G. -G. Correct. Although some books will still have it C-H-I-K-U-N-G. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you might look that up. Um, and also, there's another activity that you talk about in in the book, and it's the making emitting a sound, a humming sound. Mm. Mm. What's the significance of that sound? Well, well Arlen Marlberg uh, is the one who introduced it in medicine, I think, in Medicine and Miracles. And what he discovered was there his clients who he's a psycho clinical psychologist who couldn't access themselves, they kind of lost the sense of self. He discovered if he had them first image the sound, mm, and then start to make the sound mm, over a period of time, they found a stronger sense of self. In fact, in the logging on practice, mm, is part of it. And if we think about, so that's easy to do. You know, you don't even need a Qigong practice to um, imagine the sound mm, M and then do it for five or 10 minutes. Don't do it in your car. Don't do it while you're driving. Um, and you'll access more of yourself. And, if you know, the theory behind it is why that sound? It's the first sound we make. You know, usually it's the first sound we make when we're, we're if we're nursing or we're drinking. Every culture, mama, is the M sound. The sacred words, um, many of the sacred words across traditions have the mm, om, amen, shalom, shal salam. Uh, Angie Arian would say that sound brings us back to home, brings us back to self. So there are lots of explanations on why I think the easier thing is to try. So if we're feeling anxious or stressed out, as we often are in this uh, culture today, um, that's an easy way of just calming ourselves down Absolutely. just at any point. Just, mm, mm -hmm. just And we're getting our strings vibrating, and then we're getting cells nearby vibrating. You can feel that sound, that vibration resonance in your chest, and you soon can get everything in alignment, if you will. It's true. When you make that sound, you feel it vibrating in your chest, and then you say your, the strings are vibrating, and you're talking about the, the strings inside the cells. I mean, right. in, on the microscopic level, they're starting to then get in tune with one another exactly. in a more coherent way. is Totally, uh, yeah. totally. It's like, I mean, you know drumming. So if somebody's drumming, the drum nearby is going to start vibrating, vibrating without anybody doing anything. Exactly, exactly. One of the uh, ideas that you talk about is the idea of, of threes or triplets. So why are triplets <laughs> Im important? Um. Obviously, I've always been looking at correspondences, art and whatnot, and our cellular world. And I'm not even sure. Oh, well, the spiral was the first one I was looking at, that it's a sacred symbol 
in lots of cultures and seeing where it is in nature, and then looking at, well, what are the sacred traditions? The sacred traditions, Christianity talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Jewish tradition talks about the three faces of God. The Hindu tradition has three faces, if you will, or three deities. And I began wondering, where did that idea come from? And then I, of course, looked at the genetic code. It's a three-letter code. Um, When we're embryos in utero, at three weeks, we're three layers. We stay three layers throughout that development. Our brain is three layers, the cortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem. So I kept on seeing everything biology, the threes were really important. There are three tubes that direct the cell. And then I, then we think about it like, oh, three strikes you're out, three wishes, three bears, uh, three, <laughs> three little pigs, three little pigs. <laughs> Where did three come from? Right. Some of the traditions right. say we don't have completion until we have three. And then Bucky Fuller, if you look at the the geodesic dome, it looks like a bunch of triangles or yes. tetrahedrons, but the tetrahedrons are made up of triangles, and they're very, right. very strong and structurally. Exactly. And a triangle is the first stable structure, you know, if we're starting with lines, first stable right. structure we've got. Right. So... Um, is it as above, so below that at a molecular level, we don't have any threesomes, but we have lots of hexagons. We don't get life until we have hexagons, by the way. All right. Okay. That's a whole nother big, <laughs> probably a whole interview unto itself. So just going, going back to spirals, that's a sacred geometry, so to speak. And what does a spiral represent to us? Well, the spiral we've got, the DNA is, the structure of the DNA is a spiral. Uh, the DNA in our cells, if we're unwound, one's got a lot of information, it shouldn't get tangled up, can go up to the moon, I don't know, something like 60 times, back oh and my. forth to the moon. Just one DNA strand, huh? No, all our DNA. All of one our person's okay. DNA. One person's, one person's okay. DNA can get unwound, you know, like Jacob's Ladder, they talk about going to the heavens. So we've got this in our cells. Um, energy moves in a spiral. Um, a lot of our, pro- the way our proteins work in our body is basic shape. And a spiral like grows and transforms then as it, because it's not just a static going round and round and round like a merry-go-round, it's actually making some sort of progression. Exactly. So anything that grows grows in spirals too. If you're looking at seashells, if the galaxies are growing uh, in spirals and, you know, on some of the Mayan pyramids, you see the spiral being transformation to death or life. There's so much fascinating information here. I, and Sandra, we could go on and on. I thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions. Oh, thank you, Justine. Sandra Barrett is a biochemist. She's the author of Secrets of Your Cells, Discovering Your Body's Inner Intelligence. And if you'd like to know more about her work, go to her website, sondrabarrett.com, S-O-N-D-R-A-B-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3475. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts, find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive, and access many other resources for conscious living. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.